what's the best part about a centaur? Apparently, you can ride them. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we slow walk passage by passage through Dante's masterwork comedy. If you're just dropping in here for the first time, we've come a long way. We're at Canto 12 of Inferno. We're at lines 76 through 102, the back part of Canto 12. We're in the circle of the violent way down in Inferno, the seventh of nine circles. We've passed through a lot of territory and you might want to go back and catch up with this because all the other episodes are right behind us. And if you've gotten here, well, because you've been walking all along, hey, good for you because we're about to be astride and no longer need to walk. Dante and Virgil have come down a scree-filled slope. They have found centaurs on a river of blood. They've had a conversation from afar with them. They're about to have a conversation up close with them. So here's the passage, Canto 12 of Inferno, line 76 through 102. As we got closer to these fast beasts, Chiron took hold of an arrow and with its notch pulled his beard back at his jawline. When he'd uncovered his jumbo mouth, he said to his fellow soldiers, Have you paid attention to the fact that the one who comes behind moves whatever he touches? That's not what usually happens with the feet of the dead. And my good leader, who was by this point right at Chiron's chest, where the two natures are married, replied, You bet he's alive, and thus on his own, so I must show him this dim valley. Necessity pressures us, not pleasure. Somebody who stepped away from singing Alleluia commissioned me with this newfangled duty. He's not a robber, nor am I the spirit of a thief, but by that power through which I am directed in my steps down this savage road, give us one of your guides to whom we're a charge, and who can show us the place for crossing and transport us over on his back since this one is no spirit who walks through the air. Chiron turned to the right side of his chest and said to Nasus, Return and guide them. If you encounter another regiment, make them yield to you. At that point, we moved on with our trusty escort along the edge of the simmering vermilion, where the ones who were boiled gave out ringing shrieks. We still are waiting for the violent unless you call the centaurs the violent with their arrows. But we still haven't got to the damned violent. All a bit of a muddle that's going on here in a passage that I think, well, turns on some medieval jokes. Or at least shows that Dante may be a little more tongue-in-cheek than we've seen him in previous passages. Maybe he's feeling his oats, his newfound freedom beyond the walls of Dis. Let's look at this passage piece by piece and see what we can see in it. It starts out as we got closer to these fast beasts. And it's important to note that they're agile, that they're fast. These are not sluggish beasts, nor are they beasts like the Minotaur that seem to hop back and forth. These, these beasts, these centaurs, half humans, half horses, seem to have kind of a purposeful movement about them. And one of the things that's scary about them is that they're agile or fast or they move in single file and they're orderly. 
and it complicates their characters a bit, makes them interesting, not just raving idiots like Plutus or, again, like the Minotaur, but more willful, more directed. And you remember in the last passage, they've been warned to stand back, but Virgil, in ways that's almost impossible to understand, blithely walks right up to them. Now, we got closer to these fast beasts, Chiron took hold of an arrow with it and with its notch, pulled his beard back at his jawline. So many commentators over the centuries love this bit. It's a bit of naturalistic detail, um, you know, to take the, the notch on your arrow at the back of your arrow, I take it, and to push your beard back a little bit away from your mouth so that you can make some kind of pronouncement. And it has this very naturalistic detail to it. But we're going to talk about this a little bit because it seems extraordinarily thematically important too. So let's just look at Again, the next three lines, and then we'll come back and talk about this moving of the beard. When he had uncovered his jumbo mouth, his big mouth, his large mouth, his enormous mouth, it's a little threatening. It's not uh, It's not Cerberus threatening. It's still just a little bit nightmarish, this big mouth. He said to his fellow soldiers, the people who were with Chiron, and remember Chiron is the teacher of Achilles and Hercules. He's the wise one, the sage. And Chiron points out, have you paid attention to the fact that the one who comes behind moves whatever he touches? That's not what usually happens with the feet of the dead. I want to say two things. One is we've actually gone seven lines here. Remember, the comedy is written in three-line stanzas, and Chiron's speech actually breaks over a three-line stanza. He said to his fellow soldiers, have you paid attention to the fact that's the second line of a three-line stanza? That the one who comes behind moves whatever he touches, that's the third line, thereby completing the stanza. And now on to the next stanza. That's not what usually happens with the feet of the dead. And so Chiron's speech breaks over the tercets. It breaks it, it to use the fancy word, there's a kind of enjambment. Enjambment is usually when you finish a line on the next line, but a kind of enjambment, a kind of leap over the gap in the tercets. This may show us some of Dante's increasing freedom with the poetics. Not every tercet has to end perfectly, and they haven't all along. But again, we're starting to see this more and more in comedy, and we will see it more and more in comedy. In fact, soon enough, Dante will start to even break the canto structure and lead one canto over into the next. But for now, just I'm just pointing out that there may be some more freedom in the text that you don't feel so constrained by the three-line grouping. But the most important thing to note is that Chiron sees that Dante, the pilgrim, moves what he touches. He walks along and he moves the rocks. And we've been told this repeatedly in this passage. It seems really important in this passage to note the pilgrim's corporeality. Rocks move under the pilgrim's feet, as in previous passages in Canto 12, and now Chiron actually notices it. You know, this guy, he's kicking stones as he walks and he moves. And, and you know, that doesn't happen with the feet of the dead. Notice, too, Chiron's corporeality is in some way emphasized because of the pushing back of that beard. Now, Chiron could be incorporeal. He could be a spirit that moves his jaw because spirits can clearly move things about themselves in the spiritual world. But it does seem pretty corporeal on Chiron's part. And in fact, if Dante the Pilgrim is going to get up on the back of one of these centaurs and ride it, 
They must both be corporeal. Otherwise, Dante would just fall through the air of the spirit itself, or at least in the changing corporeality poetics of comedy. That's what would happen. Remember back to limbo. Remember Dante the Pilgrim passing over the stream in limbo. Remember how much I made about that, about walking on water or walking as if he were on air. Is that because he was a poet amongst other poets and poets can walk on air? Maybe. I think it has much more to do with the changing notion of Dante's corporeality. And here, it seems like we're being told out loud that Chiron is corporeal and that the pilgrim is corporeal. But that leads us to a bigger problem. Who are these centaurs? What are they doing here? They're not demons. They, they don't seem to be crazy, ravenous, the way Cerberus or Plutus or Phlegus seems to be. Who are these? Are they damned? Have they been put here because they're damned? Or are they put here because God chose them as tormentors, as agents of torture? If so, how do they feel about being in hell for the rest of eternity? Or are they in hell for the rest of eternity? We assume so, since the punishments of the damned will only increase after the end of time. We assume this is going to go on forever. The, the centaurs circling this river of boiling blood and shooting arrows at the violent. What did they feel if they're corporeal? <laughs> so many questions. Do they need to sleep? Do they need to eat? Do they need to rest? The question of corporeality in the afterlife is significant. Listen, in the Odyssey, in Homer's Odyssey, which Dante doesn't know, Odysseus just sails right up to the underworld, right? It's an island in the Aegean, and you sail up, and Odysseus has to make certain rituals and rites and dig ditches and fill them with blood and all this stuff, you know, before the dead, the dead, the dead step forward. And he finds out, oh, my gosh, that his mother has died since he left Ithaca while he's been away fighting the Trojan War, which he didn't even know. The spirit of his mother comes, and Agamemnon comes, and Achilles comes. It's all incredibly fraught at that moment. But you just sail up to it. Well, we would say that Inferno here is a place because the rocks move, because there's a scree-filled slope. In the Odyssey, when Odysseus comes to embrace his mother, he can't do it. He puts his arms through her three times. And it's a very heartbreaking scene. And it's, it's, it's rather solved, the corporeality problem. Here, Dante is, well, smarter than just to make it that the spirits are shades and their corporeal walk among them. There are all kinds of problems that brings up, and the more you tease it out, the more problems they are. Now, I keep teasing this out, and I keep dancing around that, and I, I have to tell you, this is not going to get solved until we're in Purgatorio, but it clearly is coming up, and the poet is trying to solve it, because as I've told you before, I believe that what you're looking at is a poem in process. That is, thoughts and arguments are being worked out as the poem is developing in front of you. That seems to me the easiest answer for some of the inconsistencies in comedy. But I realize <laughs> that that's Occam's razor and that 
many a person has slit her or his throat on Occam's razor. So (laughs) while that might for me be the easiest explanation, it may not be exactly right. And there are many scholars of much more scholarly merit than I who would certainly say it is not the right perspective on the poem, that the poem is itself a finished object. And they would have more cohesive arguments about why what seem to me inconsistencies don't actually appear as inconsistencies in the poem. For me, let's just round it out and say, I think I'm being yelled at that Chiron and our pilgrim are corporeal. One can move his beard, the other can move rocks. But this, again, brings up other questions about the centaurs, questions that the passage itself seems to let alone for now. After Chiron notices that the feet of the dead don't move rocks, and this guy does, so so Virgil steps right up to Chiron, and he's right at Chiron's chest that, boy, you know, they've been warned away, stay where you are, don't move, don't come closer, don't make us shoot you. And here Virgil is, right at this point, he's right up at Chiron's chest. Now, this must be a beastly large thing, you know, a horse with a man's chest. This is this is a huge thing. Virgil's face has got to be right about naval level on this thing. And it's important that we see that because it says right at the point at Chiron's chest where the two natures are wed or I translated are married, are conjoined, are commingled. The two natures, the beastly nature and also the mm, human nature. This is an instance of that bestial human fusion that seems to be a thematic underneath the cantos of violence. If you remember back in Canto 11, when Virgil was discussing the map of what's ahead, Virgil laid out three kinds of sin, incontinence, malice, and insane bestiality. And I said, well, incontinence, those are the sins up above the walls of Dis. Malice, I don't know where heresy fits, but malice is the violent and insane bestiality are the fraudsters. But I told you that many critics see the violent as the insanely bestial. And it's from passages like this, which seem to be pointing us constantly toward the bestiality of what's going on here. Two natures fused. It's it's this blasphemous incarnation with these apparently rational and rather, well, nice centaurs. They're going to let the pilgrim get astride one of them. How much nicer can they be? Which is confusing again, although at this point they do appear threatening and they do appear to stop the pilgrim and his guide Virgil. But Virgil is undeterred. So let's move on. Virgil says, you bet he's alive, and thus on his own I must show him this dim valley. Necessity pressures us, not pleasure. And I just want to stop right here. Virgil's attitude has changed. Why has it changed? This is not how Virgil spoke to Charon, to Cerberus, to Minos, to Plutus, to Phlegius. There Virgil threw his spell at them. There Virgil was very forthright. You know, you have to let us pass. What is willed is in heaven is what is done. The end. Get away. Plutus collapses. Minos lets them by. Cerberus seems to rake the dam, but then gets stopped because Virgil fills his mouth with the filth from the ground. 
Karen, a little bit more dialogue there as we discussed, but still, Virgil is very forthright in all of those encounters. Virgil was like that with the Minotaur, we should just say. Virgil was very much dismissive of the Minotaur, and they went on. But here, Virgil seems to slow down and talk to these centaurs as if he and these centaurs are on a level. This is the teacher of Achilles. This is the teacher of Hercules, and this is Virgil. They are on some ways, on a level with each other. But it's just interesting and curious to see the change in Virgil's character. You have to kind of figure out why is there a change. There are several answers you could give. You could say, well, those other bestial creatures, even Charon, all of them all the way down to here, were kind of insane in various ways and almost caricaturish classical figures turned into Christian demons, and these figures are very different. These figures are noble, and you could argue, or or seemingly noble, you could argue that Virgil has gotten out of his depth. Here, we've passed the walls of Dis, Virgil's out of his depth, his attitude has changed. Yeah, maybe, except he very much dismissed the Minotaur in the same way he, in a similar way, to how he dismisses Plutus. So I'm not sure that Virgil's out of his depth. Or are we, are, are these centaurs truly different? Are they more noble? Are they more oh, human, well, they're half human, than the previous guardians? And does that make Virgil's attitude different toward them? Because, listen, the centaurs don't appear to be demonic. They appear to be more like emissaries of God or those who meet out God's punishments. Now, in a divine providential network, even the demons who punish the damned, and we will get to classically Christian demons who punish the damned. Even the demons who punish the damned are doing God's work, right? That's the providential alignment. And I tried to argue part of that with Erichtho way back when Virgil mentions Erichtho, that there may be this providential rewriting of this figure who can raise the dead. And here, you know, her task is to raise Virgil up and send him down to the bottom of hell, which ultimately allows our pilgrim his journey because Virgil is a sure guide. Okay, fine. And well enough. Yet, at the same time, it's different. We haven't yet seen creatures that are so directly emissaries of God. Sure, we've seen Karen hit the dam with his wart. Sure, we've seen Cerberus rake the dam with his claws. But this seems different in some fundamental way. Let's just go on with it. Necessity pressures us, not pleasure. I love that line from Virgil. We're not tourists. We're not just roaming around here taking pictures on a selfie stick. We have a job to do, and we have to get there. Necessity pressures us. Again, Virgil's hanging back from saying divine will. Necessity pressures us, not pleasure, but still. I take it that the line is a little tongue-in-cheek. Who would take a tour of hell for pleasure? Who would do this? Somebody, Virgil says, who stepped away from singing Alleluia commissioned me with this newfangled duty. He's not a robber and I am not a thief. Now, you know who that is. Somebody who stepped away from singing Alleluia. That's Beatrice. You also, by this point, if you've listened enough to this podcast, know what that is. That's paraphrastic phrasing. That's walking around someone or some classical reference without actually naming it. And here, of course, we're talking about Beatrice because we read Canto 2. We know what happened, except 
you're being given a paraphrastic phrase for something that has happened in comedy. You can fill this in because you read Canto 2 of Inferno or listened to this podcast about Canto 2 of Inferno and you know who this somebody is who stepped away from singing Alleluia and commissioned Virgil with his newfangled duty. The poem is getting paraphrastic about itself. That seems very important. It seems like the poem knows it's putting demands on its reader, and it seems like the poem hmm, knows. Wow, it seems self-conscious, right? It seems like the poem knows that its reader is studying it carefully and can now fill in paraphrastic moments from the poem itself. It seems really important because paraphrases does certain things. And we've talked about it. It assures the writer that he's talking to, well, or she, but in this case, he, that he's talking to a learned reader. That is, we both get the classical reference here without my having to say it. It kind of uh, flatters the reader. The reader does, in fact, get the classical reference. But you know, there is another way that paraphrasis works, and that is it forces you to pay attention to the details. It forces you to see what's happening without naming it. Because listen, once you name it, you have categorized it and put it in place. I can actually see those details more clearly because I haven't shoved it into a box of learning up inside my head. And what is the detail here? Somebody who stepped away from singing Alleluia. It's that word, Alleluia, which jumps out amongst a boiling river of blood and centaurs and double-natured and commingled Alleluia, which includes a Hebraic name for God in it, Yah, God, Alleluia, at the end. And Dante would most likely know that. But just the word itself, here, in this surreal, crazy landscape of Minotaurs, that word is so jarring. You can't not hear it. And you can't not hear it as a giant difference from what's going on around it. If Virgil had just said, Beatrice came down and stopped singing Alleluia and commissioned me on this newfangled duty, you'd focus on the Beatrice part. By leaving her name out and making this paraphrastic about her, you have, in fact, allowed us to hear the word Alleluia in a place where we would never expect it. But there is something else left out of this passage. Virgil says, he's not a robber, nor am I a spirit of a thief. It's that line. He's not a robber. Great. We're about to meet, as we've been told already in Canto 11 from the map of hell, we're about to meet those, the violent against others, the murderers, the grand murderers. In this case, there's going to be civic, political, giant figure, genocidal type murderers. And also, we've been told that here are those who plunder other people's property, that that's another way you can do violence against others. And Virgil says, he's not a robber, and I'm not a, the spirit of a thief. We're not that kind of, we didn't do that kind of violence against others. We didn't steal their property. And what is left unanswered or unasked? Hmm. Are they murderers? And you can't not, in my opinion, hear this line, he's not a robber, without thinking of Cavalcante. And, well, in my edition of, of the Divine Comedy that I have been using for years, in my edition of the comedy, right next to this line in the Florentine, I have written, hello, Guido Cavalcante. 
hello, Dante's potential guilt over what happened to his rival poet. If you want to know that story, go back and look fully at those episodes in Canto 10, Amongst the Heretics. But you'll notice here, we're coming to the murderers and the plunderers, and Virgil says, we're not plunderers. <laughs> Just like saying, mm, what's the other part of that equation? While I don't think that it, there's anything necessarily funny about this, I don't know, the entire passage itself seems to have a wry irony about it, all the way up to Virgil looking at Chiron's navel, all the way up to Chiron pulling his beard back from his jawline, all the way from this paraphrastic phrasing. There's a winking or a wryness that is going on inside this passage itself that I would even say imbues this line with a certain irony. Virgil goes on, you know, by the power that I am directed in the steps down the savage road, give us one of your guys to whom we're charged and who can show us the place for the crossing and transport us over on his back since this one is no spirit who walks through the air. So Virgil is asking for the pilgrim to get astride a centaur. And if you know anything about centaurs, centaurs are not exactly happy to be ridden, at least in classical literature. But I think there's another irony going on here. Dante and the centaurs are corporeal. Dante's going, this is the circle of the violent. Dante's going to get on the back of one of the centaurs and be carried across a Ford, and it's important that it's Nasus, and we'll talk about why in a minute. But I think there's a reference here to Matthew 11:12. The Gospel of Matthew 11:12 is this passage in which uh, John the Baptist is in prison in the Gospels. By this point, he's been put in prison for, for his teachings, and he sends word to to Jesus and says, "Are you the one, or should I wait for another?" It's this kind of moment of doubt from this very saintly figure, John the Baptist, who you know eats wild locusts and honey and lives out in the desert and baptizes Jesus. But it's still a moment of doubt. Are, are, are you it, or is there someone else coming? And this causes Jesus to launch into a sermon to the crowd about what happens. And the line that happens is in verse 12 that I'm so interested in. And here's the line. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent bear it away. This passage, it strikes me, is sitting underneath. We are in the circle of the violent. And here is an example in which ironically, one of the centaurs will bear the pilgrim away, carry him off. The, let, me, let me just go back, and this is going to get a little technical, but let me just tell you that the Greek in this passage, which Dante would not know, the Greek in this passage is kai bestai hapazusin autain, and violent ones carry it away as plunder. Harpazusen is to steal like plunder, to grab booty away, to seize it, something that's not yours, and run off with it. So the violent have taken it, the kingdom of heaven, and seized it as plunder and run off with it. When it's translated into the Vulgate, into the Latin, this is the part that Dante would know, the phrase is translated et violente rapiunt 
ilud. Rapiunt is much more this notion of carry off, of take away. It's not doesn't necessarily have the plunder image under it, but it does have the carry away, carry off. And that's the bit that Dante would know. And, and I think this is important here because we're amongst the violent. Dante's about to get carried off by one of the centaurs, not carried off into oblivion, but carried across the river by one of the centaurs. And I think there's a little bit of biblical irony, a little bit of wink, wink, nudge, nudge going on in the passage. By the way, this passage in the Gospel of Matthew 11, 12, the violent buried away, will come up again in Paradiso 20. So it is a passage we know that Dante knew. And while I don't see any direct reference here, still getting astride this thing and being carried off amongst the violent, it's hard not to know that this passage is sitting in the background. And it's hard not to see it as a winking gesture on the poet's part. All part of what I think is an increasing amount of play in the passage itself. Play that sometimes, in fact, may be at odds with the thematics of comedy. Let's finish off the passage. Chiron turned to the right side of his chest and said to Nasus, return and guide them if you counter any other regiments. And we're told that these regiments go around this circle by the thousands. Make them yield to you. So if you meet any other centaurs that are giving you trouble, just say, get out of the way. Get out of the way. We're on our way. At this point, we moved on with our trusty escort. When exactly does the pilgrim climb up on the centaur? It's not clear in the passage. There surely is a reason the poet leaves it ambiguous. Is the poet leaving it ambiguous because these centaurs are noble creatures and the poet doesn't want us seeing somebody clambering up on the back of one of them? Is it because the poet is uncomfortable with the passage and the corporeality? Is it because the poet is not ready to solve this problem? But that word trusty escort this is Nasus. Remember, I told you, Nasus carried Deonira, Hercules' wife, away to rape her and was killed by Hercules and ultimately got his vengeance on Hercules. Dante knows Nasus from Ovid, from the Metamorphoses, book nine, about line 108 and 110, along in there. Nasus is said to be schooled at fording streams. So Dante has picked him up from Ovid's Metamorphosis from, for this reason. But Nasus is not exactly a trusty escort, at least not in mythology. There's, there's no way that this centaur is such a good guy. Now, the centaur is going to prove a great guide in comedy, but there is no way that this centaur is a trusty guide. And I can't help but read that. We moved on with our trusty guide. and I can't help but see a wink. It's just all part of what I think is the increasing play and the increasing freedom inside comedy itself. They move on with their trusty escort along the edge of the simmering vermilion where the ones who were boiled gave out ringing shrieks and all this food and cooking metaphor with the violent, all part of what's going on in this larger passage, but with one giant problem. And here's the problem. It's a problem not only for Dante, but for all modern writers, all allusions, all characters that you're going to reference come with layers of baggage. Listen, if I wrote a poem and I put Abraham Lincoln in it. Abraham Lincoln comes with hundreds of years of baggage at this point. Hundreds of years from, from 
of what he himself did in the Emancipation Proclamation and in his own ambivalence toward the Emancipation Proclamation and his changing attitude and his relationship with Frederick Douglass all the way up to George Saunders' Lincoln in the Bardo. There are all kinds of references to Lincoln that are going to accrete, <laughs> that are going to gather around this figure. It's the same here. Dante is referencing fi figures of classical mythology that have all kinds of references around them. And one of the references we know is the, the attempted rape. And if this rape is being referenced in this passage, then either the poet is winking at us and saying, yeah, remember this guy? Look how trusty he is, which he turns out to be here. Or the poet is somehow trying to overcome the classical reference to who this figure is. I prefer the winking you could claim the overcoming, the rewriting of these figures into a redemptive and Christian context. I prefer to see a little play in the passage. But either way, when you're dealing with classical figures, when you're dealing with references from before, you've got all kinds of matter that has accumulated around it. I mean, one of the things that's interesting about reading Homer, since it came up earlier, reading the Odyssey and the Iliad, is that we don't know what came before it. So we don't actually see any accretions around Calypso and Circe and the Lotus Eaters. We can guess some of them and we can intuit some of them out of what's happening there. But it's so, it, we encounter a text that doesn't have layers of sediment behind it. And so we as the readers are allowed more play. Here, the play happens because of the sediment. And so I enter this text talking all about Alleluia and Beatrice and Bible verses and classical references because there is so much surrounding what's already happening in this text, and it allows both the poet and the reader to play. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast of Walking with Dante. I went on a bit about this passage. You know, it's so funny that so many critics don't like Canto 12 and kick it for various reasons, where I think it just has so much intrigue and interest for someone who wants to carefully look at comedy. I hope you subscribe to the podcast, like it, rate it, please rate it. It can use some ratings. And I appreciate your effort at being part of this. Thank you very much. Thank you literally you listening thank you for being a part of this podcast and for being on this journey connect with me on all the social media platforms you can ever find except tiktok because i am not 20 but all the rest of them look for me there i'd love to connect with you and come back because we got to finish off the violent we got to finally see some of them in the next episode of walking with tante mm -hmm.